meeting is being recorded. All right, Steve, take it away. Cool. And we are here with episode 10, three men in a barbell, and all three of us are actually here. Kyle has blessed us with his presence. And by that, I mean, his schedule has allowed him to be here. We're here for it. I know you're here for it. Um, today, we actually put up an AMA in our Instagram, like weekly, Dalton and I do. And we asked for different podcast topics. And I got an interesting question from a recruit lifter on meat day handling, uh, different ways to make uh, a meat day handler more effective, different things they should do, different things that uh, they should be looking out for, et cetera. And then I think Dalton got another question from Space Coast Powerlifting again, who asked us, um, what is neural drive? Is it possible to increase it? And if so, how should you do so? So we'll probably start with meat day handling. And uh, we'll probably kick it straight to Kyle on this because Kyle's one of the best meat day handlers that I've ever come across. He handled me at my last meet. He handled Dalton at, what was it, the Iron Nightmare? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. it was an Iron Nightmare. That was a decent meet. What was that, 1775 at 220? Uh, 1785. Oh, yeah. 85 at 220. Yeah. Hey, give me the 10 pounds. Right? Yeah, I'm here, it for it. I'm, here for, I'm here for it. <laughs> hey, one inch counts, and we need every 10 pounds. So um, what do you think, Kyle? What, what, are some, what are some meet day handler responsibilities, and what are some tips you have? Biggest thing that I can say is like take as many concerns off of the lifter, even if they don't want you to take them from them. And the reason why I say that that specific way is the literally both of you are the worst when it comes to meet day. I've got this, I've got this, I've got this. And if you're stepping in for somebody as a meet day handler, the best thing you can do is tell someone to shove that response up their ass. Because the least that you are like the less you have to worry about on meet day, the better you are and the more focused you can stay. And like that's coming from somebody who is the most controlling person in the world. And that's part of the reason why I handle people the way that I do. And don't get me wrong. Like if somebody tells me, no, I've got this, that's fine. But if your first response is no, 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 I'll, I'll handle this. No, you won't sit your ass down. And then if you push me on it, I'll at least ask you why. But at the same time, Loading plates, that's a no-no. If you're, I don't give a shit how stubborn your athlete is that you're helping that day, how stubborn your friend is. Hey, I'm, I've got this. I do this in the gym all the time. I don't give a shit if you do it all the time. You're not doing it today. There are enough people in the back room. It's going to take me five seconds to put a plate on the other side of it. Let me do it. And then the next thing is learn the mental state of your lifter. Are they a hyped lifter? Are they a calm lifter? Are they a worrier? Are they a walker? And you've got to learn how to control that person. Like Steve is somebody who likes to jog a mile before he takes a fucking repetition. And I literally, every time we got done with a rep, I was like, no, find a chair. And like, I would tell him whatever he needed to know, whatever his question was before he got up out of the chair. If he looked antsy, I would be like, he's six out. I don't give a shit. If he literally just heard me say he's six out. If he looked like he was getting out of the chair, I would literally look at him and be like, you're six out just to keep his ass in the chair. And that's the biggest thing. If somebody starts looking antsy, ask them why. Give them a response. Tell them where they're at. Tell them where they're going to be. Don't make them ask questions. If you are there handling them, answer their questions before they ask them. I don't give a shit if they literally look at you and go, I, I got it. Shut up. Like Dalton literally looked at me the one time and I was like, you're four out. And he's like, that's fine. I would rather him tell me that than him be sitting here going, all right, when the fuck, where am I? And like Dalton was somebody who liked self-wrapping his knees. I'm not going to fight him on that. That's his 
personal way to get into his groove, I'm not going to mess with that. But at the same time, he doesn't need to be up out of a chair walking around figuring out when he needs to knee wrap. So I literally told him from 10 out all the way down to he was three out where he was at. So he knew his timing. I don't know his timing. I don't need to know his timing. That's on him. But I communicate everything to him. And then in between every reps, I know where his water is. I know where his, if you use them, your uh, fucking sugar glucose tablets are. If you need nose torque, you are not chasing shit down. If you were handling somebody, you were pretty much their walking shelf for the day while they're lifting. Cell phone, headphones, all of this shit. And also know the day's plan. Don't wait until their flight starts to ask, what's your first, what's your second, what's your third, so on and so forth. Have their plan and know where they're at on the day. Like when Steve told me, listen, this is my first day's goal. This is where I'd like to be on my best day. So I already knew, all right, cool. I can make little extra on lifts where we have it. But at the same time, I'm not going to put it in jeopardy even if I see it because that's not my call. If you watch Steve's last deadlift, I throw my hands up in the air and everybody thought it was because I was happy. I threw my hands up in the air because I made the safe call because I wanted to not screw up his goal. But in my head as a coach and as a person, I w I'm sitting here analyzing this and I'm like, I know we have more. But at the same time, I'm not Steve's coach. I was Steve's handler. It's not my responsibility to go, Steve, you've got 15 more pounds and then put it on the bar without talking to him. But I'm also not going to pull him out of that headspace because he told me what his goal for the day was. So I don't, it's not my call to roll the dice on Steve's day. So it's like, know what your athlete's goal is when you're handling them. So that communication beforehand and that trust can be a, a two-way street. But at the same time, if your athlete that you're handling says, I just want to go out and give my best shot for whatever best day is. Then, yeah, you have to make calls on that day. But at the same time, if somebody has a goal, you can't disrespect those goals. I agree. So to kind of clarify some of that for uh, audience members who weren't, aren't familiar with it, um, I was dealing with some serious um, patellar tendinopathy in my left knee. So my primary goals were to not significantly injure my knee, to go nine for nine and to secure a 1500 total. So Kyle's right. Like nowhere in there is there is there set the highest total possible. Like nowhere in there is I want a 300 kilo deadlift. Like now that's not to say that that won't be some of my goals going forward. Like in this next meet, things are going to get much more aggressive. And uh, some I do have like actual concrete goals in mind. 300 kilos being one of them. And it's like at that point when when the when I can say to my handler like Yo, send it. At that point, they have the freedom to make those calls. But I deeply agree with Kyle. Like know the plan and stick to the plan. Like. If someone's trying to set a qualifying total for a, a big meet or like an elite total, or they're trying to set like a personal total goal of theirs or whatever, that's huge. And I, I, hundred percent agree with that. I think and I would also say too, it's like, part. don't put it on just the handler. If they're going to have your attempts, give them to the handler at that point too. Yeah. It just takes a lot of effort off them, a lot of thought process off them as well. That way they can look at yeah. it and be like, Hey, you just smoked that last one and we can go up from here. So one thing I will say with that, though, is definitely communicate any issues you may have too, because and uh, please understand any, anybody listening. This is not me bad mouthing someone. This is just I had had a bad experience in one of my competitions where I was coming back and I'm still coming back from a stupid shoulder injury on bench press. And I had made a specific request that we make certain jumps 
so that we could meet an overall goal on the bench press for the day. And the person who was handling me decided to make a bigger jump on my second attempt because of the way that my opener moved on bench. But I had tried to methodically stage out my attempts so that I could comfortably make a, a solid jump for that third. I ended up scratching my third on that day because of that bigger second jump. So if you think that there's a call like what Dalton is making, make sure you're not like those attempts aren't a mental thing because like you don't know, like it's just like what Steve was saying. I knew he was worried about the knee. So like I did make a bigger jump on his third squat, but it was because of the fact that I could see the knee wasn't bothering him. I had talked to him between his first and his second and I had looked at him and I told him before he took his second, give me a look if you're good to go. And I looked at him when he was walking off the platform and I gave him the thumbs up as a question mark. And he went back and looked back at me and said, yes, my knee is good to go. So I knew we had a little room. Mm -hmm. So I didn't just take it upon myself to make an assessment about his day and go, all right, we're going to make a bigger jump than what's on the piece of paper. We had had a conversation that didn't take him out of his headspace where he's like, well, fuck, what's he going to put on the bar? I just said, listen, I need to know how your knee is feeling. Give me that go ahead afterwards. And when I uh, when I gave him that question mark thumbs up with my face, he was like, yeah, no, we're good to go. And I knew that I had a little more room. So make sure that when you have your conversation with your athlete, because not every athlete's going to know to volunteer this shit. So if you're handling for somebody, it is not inappropriate to ask questions. Hey, do you have any injuries? Are there anything that we're dealing with today? You know, do you have any weird things? What are your jumps normally? That's a big one I always ask people. Because, like, um, in the same meet that I was handling Steve, I was also handling a few other athletes, one of Dalton's athletes, one of a few of recruits' athletes, just in helping. And everything, everybody, I asked everybody, hey, what are your normal jumps in the gym? And I got that information before I started making any call. Because if somebody's only used to 50-pound jumps in a gym and you make a 75-pound jump from the warm-up room to the platform or on the platform, it doesn't matter if they had that weight or not. It matters if they can deal with that load differentiation between attempt one and attempt two or between attempt two and attempt three. If you're not used to that, di that, that difference of weight in your hands or on your back, it can throw you off. And a lot of people don't realize that because like, I mean, Steve can attest to this. When I warm up my deadlifts, I make massive jumps. So yeah. if somebody said, hey, can you make a, you know, 110 pound jump between this and this? I'd be like, yeah, that's fine. Mm -hmm. But most people would go, are you fucking crazy? No, not So me. it's like, <laughs> and I would never do that to somebody else. I would never assume that, okay, they can do this. I would mm -hmm. ask them, hey, what is your, you know, what are you used to? All right, I'm used to 35 pound jumps. Okay, well, that's, that's it. That's our cap for the day. We're making 35 pound jumps and that's it. So you definitely have to communicate before you get in motion. If somebody's in C flight, you should be having a conversation with them between A flight, B flight, and before they start warming up. You've got to talk to them. I would definitely say that that's the minimum. I've always talked to people long before we ever get to the meet, and then I start talking to them on meet day as well. How are we feeling? Is there anything this? Is there anything tweaked? Is there anything, you know, over-recovered? Are we over-mobilized? That being like, you know, do we need to make minor modifications? And by the way, call outs are never a bad thing, but just remember, you may be their handler, you're not their coach. Mm -hmm. right. Like if you see something, you can point it out, but at the same time, if somebody gives you pushback, don't push them. It's not mm -hmm. your client. Like, you know, I may call out to Steve, hey, your head was down. He looks at me and goes, that's just how I am. I'm gonna be like, 
cool. That's it. I'm not bringing it up again. It's not my day. I think the same then, time he may go, like you're talking about, it's it's one of those things where it's just it's not the place to call it out either. Like a meet is just it's supposed to be autonomic. It's supposed to be autopilot. You walk out, you go. If you start calling things out with people, unless it's something like you said, something really small, it may even just screw them up even more. I agree, which that's what I'm saying is like nine times out of 10, if I ask somebody a question like, hey, why was your head down? And they go, I don't know. I'm not even going to say anything because realistically at that point, that wasn't something they were thinking about beforehand. And if they start thinking about it now, it may not be worth it anyway. But at the same time, if he goes, fuck, I forgot, then it's like, okay, keep your fucking head up. You know what I mean? Yeah. And lastly, and this is the last thing, because I I don't want to drive this shit. Don't be the guy shouting hips, 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 or head up or inner ear or big toe or pinky toe or, you know, nipples to, to air fucking, you know, whatever weird fucking shit that one, if they can hear you, they're not in the game. Like if you're not tunnel vision deaf, when you're on that barbell, you might as well fucking get out from underneath the bar, pack up your kit and go the fuck home. Like if you can hear me, there's a problem. Yeah. And now don't get me wrong. You've pretty much already said it. Go ahead. Yeah. No, if you're yelling, lock it out, if you're trying to motivate, that's fine. I get that energy. But if you're fucking shouting cues other than settle or take your fucking time at the top of a lift, like that being like, if you're at the top of a squat and you're telling somebody to settle, that's fine. I have no problem with that. That's a passive cue that is more just like, hey, slow the fuck down, asshole, don't rush this. But if you're sitting there on the side, mid-lift, and you're yelling, inner ear head up back tight this that you're fucked just go home like that was for the gym it's never going to be on the platform and if you're still shouting that you're fucked i'm sorry and then i would even say then deadlift anytime you're queuing somebody if it's in the middle of a lift they're not listening to you like it doesn't even if you're in a meet setting or in a training session like you're they're not going to listen to you so like odds nine times out of ten i won't even say anything to anybody during a lift because it's at that point, why even? But after the lift, if it's not a meat setting, then yeah, go ahead and say it. But no, I definitely agree with that. Like, <laughs> I laughed when you said like the hips thing, because that's the most common thing you see or hear is people yelling hips, hips, hips. And you're like, what are you supposed to do with your hips? Like hips is such a, it's such a useless cue in my opinion, because it can mean so many well, different things. It's just like saying chest up. Like that's, to me, it's not as good either. Like those always seem to be the ones at the meets too. Yeah. No, the only thing I've ever shouted at somebody that's actually worked to, to finish when their hips aren't coming through. And this is something that I've more, I've actually recently found out you're not allowed to do in the USPA. So I'm glad I found that out. But uh, when you're running an APF platform, you are allowed to yell at the lifter as a spotter. You're allowed to encourage, you're allowed to even cue if you wanted to. So there was a kid who could not finish a deadlift and he was literally at the top. His back was locked. He just, for the life of him, could not get his hips through. And I may or may not have whispered in the back of his head to pucker his asshole. And he actually squeezed his glutes to get it finished. And I know that sounds absolutely ridiculous, but that coach literally came up to me afterwards and was like, I don't think my son would have finished that deadlift if you had not told him to pucker his ass. Like, and it is the stupidest thing, but at the same time, that stupid ass cue was more effective than 90 people shouting hips. Because if you tell someone to squeeze their butthole, they're going to pull their hips through. 
And that kid literally heard that, finished that fucking deadlift, got the down command and a national fucking record on that goddamn deadlift. So it's like, I'm, I'm never going to do it again. But at the same time, I was not going to let this kid miss this without at least taking the shot at doing it. Mm-hmm. So that's a good, it, uh, that's a good donation between like internal versus external queuing. And I think it's a pretty good yeah. uh, topic as well, because there's so many people who get caught up on that. I just had a conversation with someone today about internal versus external. Like I'm never going to have a converse, uh, conversation with a lifter unless they're at the level of having something like a bachelor's degree or some kind of like deep understanding of anatomy mm-hmm. and the lines of movement within a muscle and the lines of contraction and whatnot. Like mm-hmm. tell somebody to externally rotate their femur and contract glute. And it's like, you're looking at a lost puppy dog almost like every single yeah. time. Any other time, hey, screw your foot into the ground clockwise. All right, screw the other one in counterclockwise. Cool. You're getting the same exact thing, but it's a, a it's not an internal cueing at that point. Like, and I've probably talked about this before on, on another episode, but it just it's really something to drive home. Like, don't use internal cueing unless you absolutely have to with somebody. So like Agreed. Kyle or Steve, you might be good for internal cueing on certain aspects, but if I told you, like, hey, I want you to contract this very small muscle uh, in this portion of the body. You'd be like, okay, cool. Like, what are we supposed to do here? Like, instead, if I just told you, hey, I want you to, I don't know, pack your head instead of, you know, squeezing a deep intrinsic muscle in the neck. Like, that's going to be so much useful to y'all. Then it'd be more useful to me too, because like, I don't know what, what half the time people are talking about when they're like, hey, you need to squeeze this. And it's like, well, what do you mean squeeze it? Like, if it's a it's something i see a lot of coaches do and it's just like why do it it doesn't make any sense it it is it's it's taught and this is something that i can say from going to like going to school for what i went to school for is that like they they do not teach very well and to be honest with you i think it could be an entire class in and of itself in trying to teach someone how to really relate the cue you're trying to give someone to something they can fucking actually apply because like if you get into a room with 90 bodybuilders and tell them to fucking you know retract their scapula and pack down their lats the whole bodybuilding room is going to be like all right no problem because that's what they do like bodybuilding posing is all about body manipulation now go into a room full of fucking power lifters it's going to entirely depend on how technical the power lifter is because they're probably all going to have a different view on what retracting the scapula and packing down the lats actually means. And it's funny because when you talk to the different groups of people, that cueing is entirely different because somebody actually may be thinking about an internal cue. Somebody may be working on an external cue. Some person may actually just think about that one time that they were reaching back to scratch their ass and they felt their lat for the first time. And they're like, that's how they activate it. They think about doing it. Like, it's something that a lot of people never realize. And it's funny that literally like when most of these people go through a certification course or through a degree program, it it's not something that we ever are taught. Like literally I went through fucking two and a half years to get my second degree in what I had. Like it, it just at no point where they're like, this is how you actually make an a cue applicable. So, you know, it's hard to do from a fucking coaching perspective, let alone on meet day trying to handle someone. Yeah. I think like, it's a it's not, something that coaches need to get better at, in my opinion, like the whole psychology and communication aspect of it. Because you can't expect somebody to know something if they're not at that level. 
Like I talk about it all the time, like meeting a client at the level they're at, like whether that's coming down to level base, like base one level, or if it's meeting them at level 10, where like they have a deep understanding of that anatomy and whatnot. And I think it's something that you don't bring the client to whatever level you're at. And it's, it's the same thing with nutrition as well. It's like, we don't start with a nutrition intervention if they're only at level one. And I'm using levels arbitrary to just showcase the difference, but if they've never tracked before, like nutrition plan is absolutely useless. And I'll stand by that, but we really should do an episode on just nutrition alone because I have a lot of uh, things to say, but apart from that, because my diet is shit. <laughs> but apart from that, it's, it's just, the athlete denotes the level. The coach doesn't denote the level. I guarantee if you went to any of these bigger uh, coaches, Mike Tashir, uh probably is a really good example of it, of just meeting where somebody's at versus uh, trying to pull them up to your level. Like, it doesn't matter. There's going to be so much that's missing from that underlying concept of things that they're just not going to understand it. We're also talking about sustainability versus just, you know, uh, improvement too. Before we get too far off of meat day handling, um, I also wanted to say that it is the job of the handler to potentially get with the judges and referees on like what they're getting red lighted for and like any potential challenges that need to be made. Um, don't leave that up to the lifter in the moment. Like if your lifter hits a squat that they think is great and they turn around and they see two red lights, you do not want the lifter to be the one going up to those two judges going, what the hell was that for? Because even if they don't get the DQ, even if they don't get in trouble, those judges are going to red light your lifter on the next one. I promise you. If, they, if they're being shitty out there on the platform, even if they're not breaking a rule, these are people, man. And like, you're not helping your chances on the next one. So it can be up to the handler just to kind of keep it cool and kind of go up to the judges and be like, hey, what's going on, man? Like everything good. And then they can internalize what the judge is saying. Look at the, at the athlete's headspace and their demeanor and then see what needs to be said to the athlete in that moment. And I just wanted to hit or on that. The barbell to the opposite side so that you unintentionally dip so that you get the three white lights on your third squat for the first time in the meet. Yeah, well, for the first, yeah, right. Okay, so I'm not even going to get into it. Well, I'm not even <laughs> so going to touch like, that one. <laughs> right, so, okay, all right. So for context, at the meet, I had a side judge who is notorious across the state for throwing reds on depth. And that's cool because I don't take it personally because he does it on all the meets. He, he's, he's strict and he's fair and he's consistent. So let's do it. Like, let's do that. Um. And I was getting, and I, I mean, you can go look at my meat recap and even on my opener and on my second man, I'm squatting deep and I'm still getting red lights from the side. And on the second one, I turned and looked at him and Kyle saw me look at him and says, nope. And, and kind of directed me away from to, back towards the crowd and said, don't worry about him. I got him. And uh, everything was fine on the next attempt. But yes, there was a moment where as the athlete, I was tempted to engage with the side ref and say, a brother what more do you want from me man and like that's never gonna help your case as a lifter that's never gonna be the move and by the way anybody the trying to figure pick up. It up anybody who's oh no you want to talk about quarter on the ground picking it up <laughs> i need to send you guys both a video of something that i got sent today from europe it was uh it was a uh, united kingdom meet and i swear to god this girl her freaking glutes were on her heels and she got red lighted for her second and for her third and I mean, this was the most beautiful squat I have ever seen. Though, do you think it's stri strict here? Go over to the UK. I'm getting red lighted for depth in the UK. Like that shit was ridiculous. Mm -hmm. Not to take this way too off, but no. But and by the way, for anybody who's trying to put together what I did to get him depth on the last one, don't do it. Just, just don't. Yeah, I've got some weird <laughs> stuff with my hips, and like, you don't want to. <laughs> you don't. Want... 
like I have a rotational disparity. So like I have an easier time hitting depth on one side than the other. So Kyle like shifted the load uh, off center to compensate for that. And it, it worked beautifully, worked like a charm. It's not something that I could ever replicate without someone on the back to line me up. So I don't really worry about it, yeah, but yeah. that's, that's what happened. Don't try it at home. But it does shed light to the individuality between people though. Like yeah, that's, it's yeah. a really good example of it. Uh, another really good example too is uh, Sub Albersworth. Have you ever seen yep. him grip a squat yep. bar? Yep. Yes. One hand is way farther out than the other one. Sure. Uh, I just had that conversation all... with somebody else too. Um, Dr. Jordan way, Feigenbaum. Has... What? Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum with barbell medicine. If you ever look at him back rack a barbell, he's got one elbow six inches below the other. And like, if you ask him, it's like, Hey, you got a wing scapula. You got like, you got something going on. Like he's a big fan of saying, I'm just built different as the kids say, because it doesn't cause him any pain and it doesn't impact his squat. So he doesn't even exactly. But if you look at like the pictures on Instagram of him, like in the hole with like a heads up picture, it's noticeable. Like there's like a huge difference. And I think it's a rotational disparity is what it is, but it don't yeah. bother him. So it's so like the guy I was talking to today, like he squats with more of a, uh, a thumbless grip hand over. I squat with a grip that's and the fingers back and pulling down into it whatnot it's like it's just the difference between us like he's had bicep he's got a torn bicep so like that's what it is mm -hmm. we just have to make accommodations for it like we're all all different in some different way i got long ass arms so i mean okay. i'm taking a wide grip no matter what at that point yeah all right so i did it's not have grip. anything else does anybody have anything else on meat day handlers or meat day handling just talk. Also, have a goddamn barbell calculator on your phone if you're handling someone. Yes, a kilo sheet, a kilo to pounds sheet. Yeah, that's yeah. actually a pretty good no, idea. I've had to, I've had to catch people. To pound sheet. I mean an actual barbell calculator. The app is at most, if you get the the, the actual expensive one, it's $3. And it's a permanent subscription for your phone. So if you ever have to update your phone, it comes right back. I have one, and I'm trying to do my best to change all the platforms in the country, but I can't fucking guarantee it. So have a goddamn barbell calculator on your phone just to be able to validate what's on the bar. Like, I'm not trying to say that you need to up. shout at the spotters. And by the way, if you do see a discrepancy, just very calmly say, head judge, please check the weight. Not, fuck you, the bar's wrong. Calmly, just raise your hand and say, whoa, 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 wait. Stop the clock. Check the weight, please. Yeah, no at don't let the athlete just walk out and attempt the weight and right. then go up to them and say hey this wasn't loaded right because that's that at that point that could be considered their lift it's up to the meat handler or the meat director to say yeah we'll give them another lift like they don't have to uh technically once you once you unrack a misload it is yeah. on the lifter and the handler to check the weight by yeah. the way the rules are written so by the way the, the that it's technically written in most rule books as soon as you take the weight, you have accepted the weight. Yeah. I've been in that exact situation that you're talking about where, you know, a lifter was fixing to walk out on the platform. I looked at it and I looked at it. The discrepancy was just in color alone that I saw. There were five reds right. on one side or not five reds, but like two reds on one side and a red and a blue on one side. Mm -hmm. right. So I just calmly stopped them. I was like, Hey, you know, don't walk out yet. Let me handle this. And that's all you have to do is just say, Hey, this bar is misloaded. Can we load it with another red instead of the blue? Problem solved. I wouldn't even say it's misloaded with, with the way that everybody's temper tempers fly these days. I literally just be like, can we check the load, please? And then let them go from there. Let the head judge yeah. say it's misloaded. 
because I don't ever want somebody to get up in my face. Fuck you for saying it's misloaded. That's no, that's not what I'm trying to do. Can we check the load, please? And then let the head judge say, no, that's misloaded. We need to fix it. Like just uh, again, blanket statement to everybody. Keep it calm. Can we check the load on the bar, please? Like that simple. Keep it keep it peaceful. That way, if it's if it's wrong, then they fix it. If it's right, then you don't look like an asshole. You just look like somebody being overly cautious. So, solid. That's super solid advice. Okay. And so, outside of that, I don't have much on meet day handling. Um, have a plan. Communicate the plan. And handlers do everything you can to execute the plan while removing stress from the lifters. I think that's a decent way to uh, to sum it up. Bravo. Yeah. So, and interestingly, our next viewer question is much more nuanced. It's uh, <laughs> what, what is neural drive? Is it possible to increase it? And if so, how? And so when I first heard this question, um, I'm, I'm familiar with the concept of neural drive. It, it kind of, it was, it came into vogue about a year ago on social media with Stu McGill. Um, he was on like numerous podcasts. He did like the Mark Bell podcast. Um, I want to say, I want to say he did like squat use podcasts. Like he had a lot, he did like a quick tour of like some big ones and got this idea out there. And then it kind of died down again because like, to be honest, there's not really a ton of actionable data, but we can definitely cover the topic. And so I guess the initial question is like, what is neural drive? So if you go on PubMed and you like actually look up the, the definition that the studies give, <clears throat> it says that uh, this neural signal is the sum of the spiking activities of motor neurons and is referred to as neural drive to the muscle. The neural drive to the muscle is generated by the transformation of the synaptic input to the motor neurons into output spike strains. So if you want to like put that into more like simple terms, neural drive is the body's ability to recruit motor, ur motor units and activate the muscle. Um, and then, so there's a number of like relevant studies. If you're like looking to get a grasp of the concept from there. And one of the first ones that you kind of come across is like the increased rate of force development and neural drive of human skeletal muscle following resistance training. So in October of 2002, the Journal of Applied Physiology published this paper, and it's by Simon Sinatol. And the conclusions, like to get kind of through the, the nitty gritty of it, because I'm not a doctor and I'm not a big fan of reading 30 page studies, but I did because rate of force development was a new concept to me. And essentially the conclusions say that uh, the present study demonstrated concurrent increases in the contractile rate of force development, impulse and the efferent neuromuscular drive of human musculoskeletal tissue after intense heavy strength training. Okay, cool. So after you lift a heavy object, you are seeing higher rates of RFD, you're seeing higher rates of impulse, and you're seeing higher rates of these neuromuscular drives. That's cool. So like from that, like from that study, they drew the conclusion that heavy strength training does increase neural drive, and it does so over time. Like the, the more you practice these heavy lifts over time, the better your ability to recruit these muscle fibers becomes. From there, the question becomes, is it possible to increase this neural drive? So if I, if, I, if I tackle the topic from the person asking it, who is a natural lifter, not really. Um, outside of like pre-potentiation type stuff, which like studies have backed up in some sports and endeavors. So if you're like a high jumper and you're warming up for your max effort high jump and you are doing high jumps with a 20 pound weighted vest, you take your last two jumps with the vest, take the vest off, take your max effort jump. 
you will have increased your rate of force development because you pre-potentiated by loading the subsequent jumps. I'm sorry, the previous jumps. Um, now, does that concept relate directly to powerlifting? It's kind of tough. Like, what do you like? I guess in theory, you could potentially overload your last warm-up. You could do like a a big reverse band bench press and then go max out your barbell bench. I don't know, maybe, but I feel like <laughs> I feel like the fatigue you would incur would make that endeavor counterproductive. So, it, like the pre-potentiation, post-potentiation studies are super relevant in some sports, less relevant in powerlifting, in my opinion. Uh, that. Now, however, I will say for the sake of, uh, of fairness that Stuart McGill has created a system. Of course, he's created a system. And the system proclaims that he can increase uh, neuromuscular drive and the rate of force development through prepotentiation pathways. That's a fancy way of saying what he was having Brian Carroll specifically do was as the prepotentiation warm up, he would have him do explosive chin-ups with a thumbless grip and he would have him do it for singles or doubles in the most explosive controlled manner possible he would then have mr carroll proceed to his deadlift work where he would then apparently see positive results outside of that system and outside of Stu mcgill specifically i haven't come across a lot of credible information regarding increasing it in powerlifting I came across like some old like placebo based uh, supplements that claimed they could increase neural drive and uh, the kind of supplements that increase neural drive are not the ones that you're going to find in GNC. No, I mean, let's get down to it. When you're talking about increasing neural drive through supplement, unless you're specifically increasing acetylcholine, you're not going to increase neural drive. So, so acetylcholine, but for people that don't know, is the, uh, the neurochemical between synapses that's actually used to transmit signal. So unless you're going to increase that, you're not increasing anything. Yeah. Well, interestingly, if you take some of the DHT derivatives, um, your anadrol, your superdrol, your uh, anavar, halotestin, masteron, EQ, some of those muscle or some of those specific classes of drugs have shown the ability to uh, increase neural drive. Like you, it, it increases yeah. the ability to recruit muscle, like motor neurons from satellite, from surrounding satellite mononuclei, which is a fancy way of saying the drugs make your muscles work better. Like yeah. it lets them use more of what's there. Usually so there are certain form like, of acetylcholine increase yeah, so like, or like, like synapse increase. Well, even, even a natural could like actually intramuscularly take choline and increase the acetylcholine yep. output in their brain. You could even do it like through like some nootropic uh, precursor type stuff. If you want to get into like some of the alpha GPC type stuff, like some of the like uh, acetylcholine precursors, that's another viable pathway, but I don't want to get too down the too down the rabbit hole of that because we can just start. We, if you get me going on stuff like that, I don't that, know if we're qualified, really. <laughs> no, we're gonna go forever. <laughs> so, um, so to answer the question specifically, I think we kind of covered what it is, um, and the research is is really firm in stating that over time, like consistent exposure to heavy barbell work in a repeated motor pattern will increase neural drive. Now, that's to say you need a consistent, repeatable motor pattern, um, and again, consistent, repeatable motor pattern. So long as you're training the same competition back squat the same way over time, you will get better at recruiting the motor unit, the moto, moto neurons within those moto GP. Well, there's no R is what gets me. It's not motor <laughs> neurons. It's moto neuron. And that really gets me, man. Yeah. So outside of that, you could potentially try some of Stu McGill's explosive chin-ups. Uh, I don't recommend personally, but it's out there. Um, and if you're not willing to take certain spicy supplements, there's really not a whole lot you can do outside of trusting the process long-term. 
the, the one thing that I can say is that the only studies that I have read when I was in school, and I will, this will be my last positive comment on this topic, um, is that a lot of time under tension, so pauses, tempos, um, some actual accommodating resistance as well has been shown to benefit this, that being heavy band work, um, chain load, a, a lot, which it all started with, I don't know if you guys are familiar with the uh, drop-off units where they would start with uh, yeah, like a 45 pound plate hanging with weight yeah. releasers. So yeah. essentially because the body three quarters of the way down through the squat or through the bench press or whatever you're, you can't really do it very well with um, deadlifts unless you're doing slow load eccentrics. Um, but uh, because the body feels like it's taking a greater load, you can slowly trick the body supposedly, which I, I have, they, there are studies that have shown that there is actual scientific backing to this, that it's not completely anecdotal, but you will start to increase the amount of muscle recruitment and the actual motor unit recruitment because of the fact that you feel like you're going to be taking a larger load. So you will actually have a greater muscle contraction as you come out of the squat once the weight releasers came off. And then they noticed the same thing with band tension and with um, slow tempos and pause work, which actually is a big reason why pause work was introduced into raw lifting originally. It actually wasn't just to help with position building. It was because they noticed that there was a huge add-on to the amount of muscle recruitment that you got in the hole, because a lot of people were only getting so much development out of quads, glutes, things like that. So because of the fact you actually had to hold it in the hole, you were getting greater muscle recruitment and supposedly better quote unquote neural drive and actual total muscle activation before you, you actually were going to con contract and explode out of the hole at that point. But I, I would definitely say that anybody trying to increase neural drive, it's just time. Like anybody who tells you it's not just time is kind of doing you a bit of a disservice because it's literally just time training, in my opinion. Like it is like anything, your body will start to recruit more actively and have better transmission through that. Dalton does have a good point as far as heavy loading as far as this is concerned. But at the same time, I would argue that that in and of itself also relates to time. Because as most of us would agree on here, if your max effort is all the time, you're going to end up coming up with more issues than if you just allow time to allow that neural adaptation to occur naturally. Or take recovery aids, which I'm not gonna get into, and you can decrease the amount of time between the, that maximal loading. But at the same time, all of these studies, like they are minute snippets on what is a longer career. It's the reason why if you look at higher level athletes and the amount of muscle recruitment and neural activity that they have when doing a simple lift is much greater than that of somebody who has just started because the body has learned how to recruit more of those motor units to be able to do work. Like, again, I, I don't know where Dalton wants to take this, and I am more than willing to entertain the argument, but at the same time, none of these studies have ever shown me that, like, somebody really has a handle on being able to do that. And I'm sorry to say that as much as I respect both of the people involved in the ballistic pull-up study, I think that's bullshit, and I think that that was just because his back was more warmed up. Because I've also seen Mr. Carroll pull, and to be honest with you, he needs help. So... 
again, like Dalton's laughing right now, but like no offense to him, but the man is not exactly the deadlifter that we want to be modeling our studies after. Great squat though. Yes. No. Once he hits depth. (laughs) That 1307 was the farthest fucking thing from depth I've ever seen in my life. I think like, I think it's important to, to understand for like the sake of our listeners that um, neural drive and muscle recruitment is multifactorial as well. So like, while you may not be able to mechanistically increase your neural drive, like as a mechanism per se, there are things you can do to make your signaling more efficient. And some of that is like the pre and post exercise uh, potentiation stuff. That's also going to be staying hydrated. So your body is a big electrical computer and your brain is constantly sending little electrical bursts down your spinal column and through nerve endings. And it's making your body do things. So when you're dehydrated or if your electrolyte balance is off, it's even worse. If you have too much water and not enough sodium, magnesium, and potassium, it's even worse. Like your body cannot send signals. So like some of the first signs of like a heat stroke or like a heat distress will be like muscle flutters. And like, and, and that's one of the first signs is like uncontrollable muscle fluttering. And that's your body saying, I'm losing my ability to send signals right now. Like you have put me in a position where I can't control the signaling that's happening. And the next step after, usually after that step, the next step is collapse. So it's like, you're in deep shit if that starts happening. So you can like, you can kind of flip that on its head. And if you stay well hydrated and if you keep, especially following a, a cut, if you're out here water loading and salt cutting, that's only, ha- that's, I would say that's only like percent oh. of the battle. If you don't have the deepest understanding of recomping, especially of recomping minerals. So like, if you did this big water cut and you did the distilled water and you did all that, your mineral balance is at zero. So if you don't have an understanding of the way to balance potassium, magnesium, and sodium, how to reconstitute them and how to reconstitute them without getting yourself sick. Because if you just start slamming magnesium, you're going to get diarrhea. And then you're going to be even more dehydrated for the meat. So like all you kids who are like, I want to water load and water cut. No, you don't. Because you don't know what you're doing. And like, that's a whole separate topic on itself. That's, we could cover on that for hours, but. So there are some things that you can do to put yourself in a good, in a good spot to recruit muscle fibers. Uh, part of that's also going to be glycogen stores. And I'm sorry yep. for all my keto boys out there, but uh, muscles work better when glycogen is present. Um, that I'm sorry, as far as like the ATP, ADP pathways, um, some of like the energy pathways, like they work better on glucose, especially for contractile outcomes. Um, and that's just the, the way reason it is. why we use carbs as the main source of fuel within the that's body. That's what I mean. So that's just the way it is. So like, if you eat a good meal the day before you get enough sleep, you're appropriately mm-hmm. hydrated and your electrolytes are on point. You've done everything you can do to increase your neural drive. Now you will see some strange anecdotal stuff like, Oh, Dr. Hatfield used to do the heat. And now this is true. Fred Hatfield would do the biggest vertical jump possible before he would take his conventional deadlift because he was under the impression that he was pre-potentiating those muscle fibers. And Dr. Hatfield had a world record deadlift. So I'm not here to say that that's not true. I'm, I'm just, like, there are anecdotal things out there that you could potentially try if you think the juice is worth the squeeze. However, I think that the three men of this podcast are all of a consensus that it's not, it's not, condu- it's not a good way to spend your time. And it's probably ineffective. Like it, it's not dangerous well, so or anything, but I think we have to talk about sports specificity. Like, yes. what are we trying to do? Like that becomes a big thing. And the, before I even say that though, like the one thing I want to say to highlight the importance of electricity or not electricity, uh, electrolytes in the body. Mm-hmm. Like we have some sodium potassium uh, within our cells themselves and whatnot, right? That's what helps us keep the, uh, I believe it's like a, a negative charge within the cells. And that's what helps us potentiate whether it's, uh, depolarization or hyperpolarization like mm-hmm. that's going to help determine that 
So there's a reason why we have these electrolytes and these substances within our body, these minerals. I'm going to say minerals, not substances, because that sounds better. Uh, <laughs> but there's a reason for these. So if you, it, it's more than just hydrating. It's more than just getting electrolytes. There's a balance that goes in with all of this, right? So just like Steve said, if we take in more than one than the other, there's a ratio that goes with this. There's a balance. You have to understand that it's not just one or it's not just the other. It's both. It's all three things more than just three. It's more than sodium, yeah. potassium, and water. Yeah. Like there's a, there's a whole lot more that goes into it, but uh, I don't understand it well enough to sit here and preach it. And I'm not going to, but I know that there is a lot more. And there's a reason why we have these, these products out like uh, liquid IV or uh, oral hydrate, I think is what it is. I don't remember dry, what, dry exactly oral. or dry oral. Yeah. And yeah. Pocari sweat and whatnot. Like those, there's a reason why we have these types of things that have glycogen in them. They have uh, magnesium, sodium, uh, and you mix them with water and whatnot. Like there's reason for these things. So just understand there's a lot that goes into this. And I want to highlight that because it is so important. Um, but yeah, no, for the most part, I would agree post-activation potentiation or PAP, in my opinion, kind of useless for uh, powerlifting. Now, if you want to talk sport specific, that's different. It has been shown like within the research and whatnot, if you go out, you hit a squat and then go do a vertical jump or something like that, it can uh, post-potentiate that. Yes. Just like you were saying with hitting a, uh, a weighted jump or whatever with the vest, mm -hmm. like that's, yeah. that's completely different though. That's, we're talking about, uh, apples to oranges at that point. Like yes. we're talking specificity within the sport. So if we're talking specificity with powerlifting, no, it doesn't quite West. We want explosive power, but we're talking explosion under load, not just explosion under our own body weight and whatnot. Right. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of what I want to highlight. And um, it's not just trying to explode and accelerate through. There's a reason why we use cat squats as well, uh, from Dr. Fred Hatfield as well, but it basically comes down to, is it specific enough to carry over into the sport? Because if it's not, then why are we doing it? Number one, like it just doesn't make sense. Mm -hmm. Uh, number two, is it even useful for the athlete? Because there's people have to understand there is a dose response to this and there's also an individual response to this, right? So you might find somebody who responds really well to it. And then you might fi find somebody who doesn't respond whatsoever to it. It's like, well, which one are you going to go with? Well, it depends on which individual we're talking about. Um, now, do I think there's some post-activation potentiation with top sets and backed on sets? <sighs> Maybe. I don't know. Um, at RPE, anecdotally, at RPE five or six, maybe could like maybe. an RPE five single potentiate an exaggerated outcome in back down. Maybe, maybe your single, that's, at, and that's your single at eight. I don't think so. Well, that's the thing, though. It's like, is it necessarily that you're potentiating the nervous system, or are you potentiating the psychological system? That's oh, the argument I think needs to be yeah. looked at because I don't necessarily think you're potentiating the nervous system. Yeah, um, I think it's more okay, I handled heavier weight and I crushed it. I'm ready to handle the rest of the weight for the day, right? And I get, cause I guarantee if you gave somebody in a control group, hey, this is a three by five and it has to be, again, the control, when I'm talking about control group in this hypothetical experiment, it's gotta be the same person, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. If you give them a three by five at 70% and say, hey, knock this out as explosively as you can. But then in the experiment group, you give them, hey, here's a, a PAP single, at RPE five, six, seven, whatever, you know, the research dictates and then have them come back to the, uh, the three by five at 70 or whatever it is. Like in my mind, 
the psychological aspect of that is going to have a is play a bigger role than whatever nervous system aspect is within that. Because I don't know that we're working with weights that are going to make a difference at that point, if yeah, that and, makes sense. And because no, 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 go, go ahead. ahead. I was about to say in my own training, I noticed an opposite outcome. So like there were like there was a time for a long time when I was one of the flex boys and I was doing weekly singles off season, on season, vacation, my birthday, Jesus birthday, your birthday, we're doing singles. And so I fell into that like thought process of like, I have to keep these in all the time for skill retention. And I actually experimented in the last couple months with removing the weekly singles. There were like a couple months where I didn't do singles at all. And I was setting volume PRs. And I think at first I was inclined to believe that it was because I wasn't incurring intercession fatigue from the warm up to that top single. So for like bench, it might be a single at like 365 and then back downs. And I reasoned that because I was skipping that single at 365, I was stronger for the subsequent sets, possibly. But I think it was also just psychologically because I believed that to be true. So I anecdotally so, noticed an opposite effect that when I removed the pre-potentiating singles, my performance was higher when I removed that. Exactly. So, and that's and I think that just highlights more of the individuality that comes with it because what if it was something that wasn't the psychological aspect, right? What if, and just talking hypothetically, just knowing you, what if that that single at, you know, whatever RPE it was, I don't remember mm. what you said, I think it was like seven. What if that's taking more mental energy to, to perform that than it is to perform your back downs? You're saying I have to get it set is. up for this it is. RPE seven single and then come back down, right? It's so a it's, single, yeah. Exactly, it's, yeah. it's something to be made and I'm probably way off point in left field right now, but it's to bring it back to the PAP subject. It's like, do I think it is there? No. like. I don't see the research evidence. I don't see the anecdotal evidence for powerlifting specifically. Right. Other sports, yes, I think it is there. Um, when we talk about, you know, these pre-potentiating either singles, doubles, triples, or whatever we want to talk about, like whatever it is, I think there's a psychological aspect that has a bigger uh, role that it plays within that. Um, I have no evidence to back that up as far as like research or anything like that. All I have is anecdotal. And I'm honestly okay with saying that because like I've seen it in enough people and I've heard enough people talk about it that it makes perfect sense to me as to why that would happen. But when you actually look at it and take the psychological aspect into, you know, even the coaching realm and whatnot, you know, how many times have you had somebody who, I guarantee if you gave somebody cues to work on that were mildly tough to grasp and perform, and it gave them the same amount of work, you'd probably have that person who was trying to work on cues more fatigued than if they weren't trying to work on those cues. Uh, basically, what I'm getting at is just there's a mental game that comes into mind with this as well, or into play with this, not mind. Uh, so whether or not that, that PAP is actually in there, uh, I think it's more psychological than anything within the realm of powerlifting, in my I opinion. A, I have a devil's advocate type question for you both. So... Ooh. Real quick uh, to kind of hash up my viewpoints on this. I do agree with you that uh, the, the evidence definitely is there for other sports and you see it, uh, for example, weighted golf clubs, uh, weighted baseball bats in the warm up, like um, the heavy uh, weighted jumps before the long jump. Like, I mean, there, there's different things out there. Now, some of the West side guys, especially Louie was big for years and years and years on uh, pre-exercise potentiation, uh, especially in the deadlift. And anecdotally i'm familiar with uh different reports of chuck vogelpool uh pulling empty barbells into pins in his sumo position for isometric max holds 
Now I've seen that proliferate. It's an old Russian trick. Like don't, don't think they invented it. It's an old Russian weightlifting trick. Now I, I've seen that proliferate into powerlifting elsewhere. Like Mike was having Lewis do them. He was having Kaylee do them. Like it, it, it comes Brian's around. a big component of it as well. Right. So it comes around now mechanistically. I think you kind of may be getting into something when you get to that point. Um, especially talking about these yes. max, yeah, with these max isometric holds. And I think that's the mechanism is the max isometric hold. Um, it, it teaches you to hold position. Over exactly. Like it's not a, it's not necessarily that you're increasing the amount of force production against a static object. It's that you're, you're increasing your ability to hold position against an immovable object. So essentially like, what's the biggest issue with most people? They come off the floor and then they come out of position and they get fucked up. Yeah. And that literally increases your ability to hold position against a static, immovable object. Now, the one thing that I have seen, which is a little different than what you're talking about, is when you have somebody put weight on the bar, pull up against the pins, and then remove the pins and have them pull a full rep immediately after. I would argue that there is a mixed review that is more depends on how you respond to it. I've seen people respond negatively to it. And I've seen re people respond positively to it. I've seen some conventional pullers do a 405 pull to pins and then immediately explode off with no pins immediately following. So literally you would pull up, hold against the pins, drop down, you'd have two people remove the pins and then you do a full range pull. So I've seen some people benefit explosively and their their form is immaculate and i've other seen other people go to absolute dog shit because they were waiting for the pins to be there so yeah. i would say it's it's kind of a wash depending on how technical you are and if you can yourself derive a benefit from it the exercise in and of itself does not actually issue a direct benefit i do think that mike's intention with it with them derives a benefit as it teaches them to hold position when in that position to fight because people who have never had something in their hands that is truly trying to be ripped out of your hands it is hard to teach them to hold position when it gets rough and there's really no better way to do that than to literally have them pull an empty bar against a static immovable object and then just keep pulling and hold that for time because it teaches you to deal with pressure, it teaches you to hold position, and it teaches you to make sure that one muscle group is not overpowering the other ones when holding that position in that pull. But I would not say that that's going to directly increase the amount of velocity or the increased speed of the pull. So like right. I would argue that a banded deadlift would be closer to something to increase neural drive because as you're starting to pull through, you have something that's increasing resistance against you. But then the problem is, is that if you were to remove those bands and then immediately, so like, let's say you've got a hundred pounds in band tension, right? You got a hundred pounds in band tension and 405 on the bar. It would, it, it would be a very hard way to find the translation of, okay, have that person pull it, immediately remove the bands and put 100 pounds and plates on. Does that 505 move faster than it would have if you just had them go warm up four, warm up five? Does that make sense? Yes, it does. So what yeah. I'm saying is like there's no direct translation because any kind of increased force production from something that's increasing the amount of force output, mm. there's no way to directly acclimate or compare whether or not the amount of force produced is actually increased by the fact that they had to go against resistance. I can absolutely say that this long period of conjugate with bands and everything has made me a better squatter, has made me a better bencher, has made me a better deadlifter. 
but I wouldn't say that it's necessarily because of the fact that I have greater neural drive due to the um, essentially the lifting against bands and lifting against chains. I would say that it's more because of the fact that I have learned how to move the barbell with greater velocity and greater intent. Mm-hmm. I would agree with that. That's usually what I use bands for with a lot of people is to teach them how to actually accelerate through a lift. But I I agree with Kyle as far as like what he's talking about with increasing positional uh, one awareness. And I think I feel safe in assuming that he's talking like increasing positional tolerance as well. But I think the, on the flip side of that too, what I would also say with the isometric and producing that force, I don't know if I necessarily think that it's increasing the amount of force that you are creating, but I feel like it's also training you to, use that force for an extended period of time if that makes sense yeah that was what i was saying i I think it's more of a load tolerance yeah it's not something that it's like because a lot of people would would argue that it's it's you know getting you able to increase your force production or neural drive in this particular instance and Mm -hmm. i just think that there's no fucking way that you could make that that assessment there's there's just no way unless you have emg you know hooked up to you to be able to truly know that you're actually doing that. And then again, I would argue the question, is it a neural adaptation over time or is it the actual exercise that's doing it? Because none of these studies are a direct one-to-one on one day. They're all over time. It's it's hard to have a one-to-one. But that's what I'm saying is like, so it's a question of, is it always just a neural adaptation over time as everyone in fucking any goddamn aspect of exercise science would agree that we as people have a neural adaptation and it's continuous. It doesn't matter if it's, you know, your initial neural adaptation, which is the reason why people get much stronger very fast at the beginning or that time over, you know, maybe a 10 to 15 year career in lifting. It's a thing of, you know, I would argue that all of these studies, you could actually say, dude, it's just the neural adaptation over time. How long was the study for? Okay, it was for six weeks. That's six weeks of fucking neural adaptation. Like, at no point does any of these studies, is it just, oh, well, we studied them for two days and two hours. And in two hours, they had an increased thing. Okay, well, what was there on a normal workout day for two hours? And what was the spike? What was the differentiation in the amount of actual neural impulse that was, that was actually recorded here? How much of a spike? Are we talking about minute or are we talking about huge impulse difference? And that's the thing that's irritating as well is the majority of these studies, they're recording a differential of, you know, fucking 0.001% and calling it successful. So I think the other flip side of that too is like you have to look at is technique the same across all lifts? Because if not, you may be actually getting some kind of difference within neural drive. And neural drive in this case would just be the recruitment and activation of different muscle fibers, depending on is your load shifted forward or is it shifted backwards, like interior to posterior. And it's my issue with a lot of the studies is that they're not long enough. And it's the same issue that comes with periodization. Like you can't study periodization in a six week or a 12 week laboratory setting. Like it's just not possible in my opinion, but to kind of hit on like the whole neural drive. What we're, so you and I, you and I went back and forth at the beginning of this. And I think we're kind of settling on the same thing though. Uh, my argument was that it is neural drive adaptation that you're making at the higher, higher uh, percentages based work, right? So right. think anything between 75 to, you could go up to a hundred, let's just say a hundred, but uh, that's all neural drive work in my opinion. 
And I think it's showing research at this point. I know I just bashed on research, but research to this point right now is showing a shift to the neural drive aspect within my mind. Um, I know we have research around hypertrophy as well and different things like that, but I don't think that's what's uh, driving our quote unquote strength or power. I think it's the actual neural adaptations that we're talking about. And I think one of the things that, I think we were honestly, I think it was just a, we're arguing the same thing on different sides of the coins, but we're arguing for the same thing. We're both arguing that we're making neural adaptations over time. And I think it's, it's, hard, it's a hard pill to swallow for some people, I think, because you see these, not to pick on anybody, but, these USAPL boys who are, you know, doing the undulating periodization throughout the week, daily undulating, whatnot. And in my mind, you can't argue that that's anything else other than some kind of neural adaptation. Um, just from what I've seen anecdotally and what I've seen through like research, like, to me, that denotes a strong neural adaptation that you're creating within that person because they're not putting size on. They're not, you know, going way outside the confines of their weight classes. Uh, Sean Noriega is a great example. His training recently, he just hit like, if I'm not mistaken, either 650 or 660 PR on squats lifetime. He's only seven pounds above his weight class. So you can't sit there and tell me like, oh no, it's something other than the neural aspect of the body that's driving those strength gains. And I just, I don't think that's possible. Have you seen the quads on the boy? No, I'm not saying that I'm not saying that like neural adaptation isn't like a big part of strength gains, but like it's been well established in the research that cross-sectional area correlates to strength. Oh, 100%. A, I'm not like going to argue like, that either. Like, a, like, so like, let's be clear but, for our listeners, a bigger muscle in the data is more capable of producing strength. 100%. Um, I agree with that. Now, yeah, the yeah. issue I have is when they equate hypertrophy to strength. That's the issue Agreed. I have. Agree. It's so it's I think we would be best to say it's multifactorial like does, yeah so like do do sean's gigantic meat rocket quads matter <laughs> in his 660 go look at his instagram the dude has the biggest yes. quads i've ever seen on a natty sub 200 pounds and it's like does that matter well gee i think so but I, more to the point of what dalton so saying, on the flip side though look at the french guy that you always bring up uh he's built god i cannot yeah. remember his name Pana. yeah yeah exactly he's not a huge dude no but, but he's, he's very world-class yeah weights yeah. You can't for, sit there and tell me that hypertrophy is the reason. Because yeah. if that's the case, every bodybuilder should out-total everyone. Like being a 300-pound mass monster, you better be able to out-total, you know, the 220 guy or whoever, you know? So then why are the super heavyweights the strongest guys in the room? At that point, I think you're talking about mass and mass. That's what I mean. You So you're talking about so, there's le there's levers, cross-sectional area, exactly. and neural drive. Like these are all because the three biggest things. Because even when you, when you come down to it, like a greater... So I used this analogy not too long ago, like look at the tree trunk, right? Mm -hmm. If you put something on a tree trunk that has a substantial amount of tree trunk, you know, substantial amount of girth, I'll say that again, girth, girthy into the microphone, <laughs> it's not going to buckle, right? Yeah. But then you take somebody my size, who's a 220 competitor, a lighter 220 competitor, I have to create that stability within myself. So it, there's, again, there's just so many different things that go into it multifactorial for sure yeah but i feel confident in saying the main driving force behind strength is neural adaptations like kyle said over time especially and in the short just, term i would agree it, yes especially and that's the whole reason like 
So that's what I base my peaking programs off of and yes. my strength okay. cycles. Like, okay, if we can start to take advantage of these neural adaptations, especially at the lighter weight classes and whatnot, we can start breaking some of these, you know, plateaus that we've been in. And I think even before that, I'll take a step back and saying before even neural drive can be a factor, you have to have some kind of established skill within the sport, which is why I always harp on skill being one of the first and foremost components that we need to work on within powerlifting because so many coaches miss that. If you don't have a skill or the, the ability to repeat a uh, process, movement, whatever it is, on a consistent, repeatable uh, level, what's the point in having neural adaptations? Because we're never going to have the same pathways over and over again to express it. Yeah. So in the the data backs that up. The data backs it's up the over. fact that like. The data backs up the fact that you need repeatable, you need a repeatable motor pattern and you need repeatable joint angles. So we know as like trainers or whatever, that strength is, is relative to the joint angle. Um, that's something that a ton of people lose sight on. And if you put that joint in a different angle, your ability to produce force through that joint is dramatically. I mean, it is, you might lose 80% of your ability to produce force yeah. just through minute joint angle changes. So for the, for our listeners and the people asking this question, it's important that you have repeatable, consistent patterns. So if you're out here changing your form every single week, if you're constantly changing your grip, your width, your this, your that, your whatever, I'm not saying don't make those changes when it's appropriate to, but you want to get consistent, repeatable patterns because the goal in all this is to become autonomic, to become autonomic in our execution. We don't want to be out there on the platform going, okay, big breath, neck back, lats, externally rotate, maintain midfoot. All we want to be thinking about is fucking breathe and squat. Yeah, don't blow toe, the like, inner ear. Yeah. Yeah. Like, <laughs> so like the goal is to move towards autonomic movement. So like you need a repeatable, consistent pattern. Um, and by the way, for my young listeners, especially my teen listeners, develop good repeatable patterns now. That shit pattern that got you to the 315 deadlift, pimpin', don't think that's ever going to take you to 600. And the longer you spend ingraining that shit pattern for whatever, whatever lift, I mean, I'm not talking to anybody or any lift in particular, but the longer you spend ingraining bad motor patterns, the harder it is down the line, because again, through the mechanism of repeated exposure, you're increasing neural adaptation in that pattern. That's why if you take someone who's like a close grip bench presser and you say, hey, put your index fingers on the ring, they lose a lot like because you change the joint angle and you change the stretch reflex at that point. And that's not to say they can't build into that pattern. But if you if you ask them to make that change on the day, they're going to lose a lot of strength. So like that reinforces that meet day is not the day to be having people change, change their grip width and, and start doing different things because yeah. we're wanting to use these ingrained pathways that have hopefully become autonomic. For me, five weeks is about the time I start and stop giving cues unless it's something just gravely out there, you know, yeah. that we need to fix. Um, but I mean, it brings up a, a good point, I think. Um, so you were talking about like faulty movement patterns and whatnot, Steve. Mm -hmm. uh, so I pose a question to both of you, both you and Kyle, like, do you believe in the thousand hour or a thousand repetition rule? For our listeners and myself, give us the rule. Okay, so a thousand hours, you have to spend a thousand hours practicing this one thing to repattern a movement or a thousand repetitions, whichever one. So the question is, is that a standing rule or do you think it's uh, just arbitrary? Okay, so, so right away, I know that skill acquisition is individual. And anybody who's ever tried to teach a group of people anything knows this. Like there are going to be people who grasp things quickly and there are going to be people who don't grasp things quickly. Um, there's also like natural talent to consider. 
Um, if I was to take a young Michael Jordan and teach him how to effectively shoot a three-pointer, I have every reason to believe that even with the exact same coaching, he would be a thousand times better than me because of his natural got a natural ability. Um, so I think that, uh, uh, I think that it becomes, <clears throat> hang on, hang on. I'm sorry. Hang on. I just I step address away from... something, please, before yes. we have to, before we, just so you know, it's, it's 10,000 hours or 10,000 repetitions. 10, okay. Well, I, I love you. I'm just, I, I, I really, I was like, <laughs> I'm going to let him go, but like, I just, I had to, I'm sorry. It's Malcolm Gladwell's outliers and yes, 10,000 yeah. hours or 10,000 repetitions. I'm He's just, done. I literally, I'm sitting here and I'm just like, <laughs> all right, I can't do it. I'm sorry. I love you to death. But like, I'm like, I'm like, I'm just going to leave it. I'm just going to leave it. But then I know some dickhead is going to message and be like, it's 10,000. I'm going to be like, motherfucker, I can't, I'm sorry. Because I'm just sitting here the whole time and I'm like, I'm sorry. But no, I. Like, but I mean, that's even better than. Yeah, no, I, I honestly do think so, and that's actually a big reason why I do, I do, because, um, so like I'm a big believer in you take every repetition as a single, and I don't mean you have to re-rack the barbell or walk away from the barbell or whatever the fuck. I mean that if you're doing a set of eight, then each fucking one of those should be treated like one repetition. And if you're doing anything, unless there's an express purpose, like I understand if you're doing like a fatigue thing or if you're doing some kind of like volume to build hypertrophy, I get that. But what I'm trying to say is, is that if you are truly trying to focus on how to do one rep extremely proficiently, every one of those reps should be treated as a single. The brace is individual. The breath is individual. Everything about it is individual. And the reason why is because I do think it takes that many repetitions to master something. Because it, I mean, if you look at anything that is truly reaction based, like that being, because like, obviously I've trained in fighting, I've trained in shooting. I have seen how many repetitions it takes before somebody doesn't have to think about their actions. And everything that I have seen has led me to believe that it takes that many repetitions to make and that many repetitions to remake and reset a habit. Because like, and, and a lot of people you can see, like John Hack is a great example. John Hack retrained aspects of his pull, and then you saw hybrid. He went up in weight that one time, came out of position, and could not lock it out. Now, don't get me wrong. Could I, everybody and their mother can argue with me that, okay, well, that's, you know, just a one-off or whatever. No, he went back to old habits. He went back to old habits and pulled a different way that day. And I would argue that there's a possibility that that is due to a lack of repetitions. And then if you look, the next competition, he didn't have that same problem. Well, I would argue that there's a fair chance that that was due to the additional repetitions between the two competitions. It became more habitual at that point. Like, now don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that it's for everybody. It has to be 10,000 hours or has to be 10,000 repetitions. But I definitely say that it would definitely be closer to more, uh, how do I say this? Not a rule necessarily, but it's definitely more true for more people that it takes that much to establish a habit. I'm not saying that there's not, there's not, you know, which the funny thing is, is the, the, it comes from the book outliers. There are people who are phenomenal at establishing habits. There are people who can establish a habit much quicker than others. Like if you look at how many times that I've repatterned different movements, I do acclimate quickly, but I'm not, I'm, I'm not immune to the other effect of things. Like how many times do you see me pull a deadlift where I do accidentally throw my head up instead of packing it back? You know what I mean? And that's the reason why I do make things way more methodical now because I want to control everything leading up to the lift. And it sounds stupid. It is what it is. But at the same time, 
make fun of me all you want. All the guys that I know and girls that I know that are extremely successful in what they do are methodical down to which foot goes out first. And it sounds stupid, but like it took 10,000 repetitions for them to do it. Like it, it, and I mean, like, it sounds like a lot, but I mean, think about it. If you do four sets of 10 in a day and every one of them is a single and treat it as a single, that's 40 repetitions just on that one lift. Multiply that by how many times a week are you doing that? Multiply that by how many weeks are in that training cycle. Multiply that by how many different training cycles are you running? It doesn't take that long to come up with 10,000 repetitions of a movement. It sounds like a lot, but at the same time, it really isn't that many. I mean, Jesus Christ. I mean, shit, Dalton's seen me do a training cycle on one meet where I was doing fucking drop sets on drop sets on drop sets, but that was a whole different problem. But at the same time, think about how many repetitions that I had. If you treat each one individually as a single and each one with intention, that's a shit ton of repetitions that we don't even think about how many we do. I mean, you go into the gym, you have a four by eight, followed by a drop three by five, followed by a pause three by five. That's a fucking shitload of repetitions just for one fucking session. Steve's looking at his computer like I'm crazy right now, but it's a lot of fucking reps. Mm -hmm. I mean, shit, think about how many D did today. He fucking hits a top single. It takes fucking nine singles to warm up and then follows it with a four by or a three by four or whatever the fuck it was, followed by another one, followed by another one. And it's like, that's a shitload of fucking repetitions. Like, that man didn't even realize it was 11 a.m. by the time I was getting ready to leave. And it's like, you don't realize how many repetitions you do before you even have them done. So to say that 10,000 repetitions to make a habit, I think it's fucking well within reason. And sure, there are going to be people that take less, but I think it's it's an accepted standard. I mean, it's not terrible. Okay, so now that I've so gotten... Heard- I'm sorry. Now that I've gotten these crazy ass dogs under control, the thought that I was trying to finish was like, you have to consider the rate, like, like Kyle was just hitting the rate of individual skill acquisition is really important. Um, And then I'm immediately drawn to the complexity of the task. And what made me think of this is I recently got a new cell phone as in I lost my cell phone. So Hana was gracious enough to give me one of her old ones. And interestingly, the buttons are different. So anybody who's ever switched cell phones knows that for the first day, I don't know, first couple hours, there's like a, you keep hitting the, like, so the back button and the multi app button were reversed. So uh, I'm immediately drawn to the fact that it definitely didn't take me 10,000 hours or 10,000 repetitions to ingrain the habit of, Hey, dumbass, the back button's on the right. Uh, And I think that's only due to the complexity of the task. So I think that like for, for some simple tasks, uh, the, that rule sounds a little silly to me. Um, but for tasks involving multiple joints, compound movements, uh, under load, I think that that sounds like a, a fine rule, especially when you're talking about things like, like Kyle was speaking to, like fighting, shooting, like these are even more complex than lifting in the regards of like the realms of space they move in. So like if we're only dealing in the sagittal plane in one direction, like shooting, shooting technically deals in all directions because that bullet can go anywhere you point it. And people don't realize like a 16th of an inch difference in barrel point at 30 feet equates to 16 feet. So like, brother, these fractions of an inch in shooting position really matter. Um, so that like in a, in a, in a instance like that, 10,000 repetitions, I think they would, it could even be more if you really want to be like, if you really want to be autonomic, like in your mastery of the movement, I think that some tasks are going to require even more hours or even more uh, repetitions, but 
again, like simple tasks, like remembering which side of the phone your back button is on, immediately I know it doesn't take 10,000 hours. So like it just, just so depends. That's, the that's, quote actually does state that it's to achieve mastery of complex skills and materials. Then that that's makes, I'm with that. Well, exactly. And that's yeah. the thing. Then, yeah, like, I'm with that. I want to point out the fact that like you both said, it depends on when the complexity of it, because I fall on the side that it doesn't take 10,000. Like and that's, and I firmly believe that, but mm-hmm. my reason behind it is because one, if you look at the individual rate, like we just talked about, like that blanket statement to me, just doesn't make sense anymore. Uh, it's kind of like the gas principle. Like I don't, that's a whole that's different your, conversation, that, but it's that's another your favorite. One. That's your favorite it, redheaded stepchild to beat it on this is, podcast. It is. I love beating it because it doesn't make <laughs> any sense anymore and people yeah. need to stop using it. But the reason why I say that is again, because you, you both brought it up, like complexity of the task. Number one, that takes a big, big uh, value of it. And that's going to be individual too. Like the exactly. way you perceive complexity is different. But then again, it's like the individuality between skill acquisition, like y'all, you both said it, like that again, plays another role with it. So in my eyes, it could be 10,000, it could be a hundred, it could be 10, like it doesn't, it just depends. But the other thing I look at too, is like, what if we're taking advantage of the body's natural learning cycles? So basically what I'm call it a biohack if you want or whatnot, but please don't, don't, don't do that. Um, you mean insulin? basically what I, what? you mean insulin? <laughs> no, no, no. I mean, for um, mo- all right. So for motor pathway and like, and signaling like uh, insulin, be it endogenous or exogenous is a proven method of like ingraining motor patterns. Uh, they've proven it in like children's learning studies. They've proven it in like uh, economy of movement studies, endogenous or exogenous insulin increases the rate of learning. Well, I Boom. just learned something today. Boom. Uh, Steve just dropped a knowledge bomb on me. I think I got that um, from Dave Herrera, actually. <laughs> like, don't think, like, I don't want to make you sound like that, that came from me. I think I got that from Dave Herrera. But, uh, I mean, it, it proves to what I'm saying, though, is like there are different ways to affect this skill acquisition process, right? And if we can take advantage, I think as coaches, if we take advantage of the different things we have at our disposal, mm-hmm. whether it be the allostatic loading or the ultradian cycles that we have within our body, and basically all they are is the up and down of the learning process, right? So the premise behind the ultradian cycle is that we have an hour's worth of time that which we can extremely focus on something and pick up something. So in the case of like what Kyle is saying or like you're saying, the individuality of it, if we as a coach put that work at the forefront that we're trying to establish or change within the lifter, who is to say that these repetitions we're doing aren't counting for more than one repetition, right? If you want to take it, take it as a quantitative uh aspect right so what if that one repetition is equating to 100 repetitions or what if you know 50 whatever whatever number you want to give it and that's basically the point i'm trying to make is like in my mind if we're taking advantage of these different things and also depending on the individual like that rule goes out the window because it could take one day it could take four weeks four months like it just it just really depends but i think you also have to take into the fact of like people are going to fatigue in a different fashion and the fact that, you know, so for instance, if I perform five to six lifts or five to six reps within a set, and they're all to a T exactly what I want, but that seventh one, and that eighth one drop off or deviate from what I want as far as positioning or whatever, how much is that affecting the rate of skill acquisition at that point? Because now you're trying to teach your body two different things, right? You're so that's kind of what I get into. You're getting into the premise behind, are you familiar with data-driven strength? as a company, Bigly. you're getting into the premise behind a lot of their volume loading schemes. Like exactly. they're not, they're not big scans. They're not big fans of three sets of eight. They would much rather do six sets of four. 
because the intercession fatigue that creeps up is like, it's at that point, you're starting to train different mechanisms. And their contention is that the, the reps with the highest velocity with the least amount of intraset fatigue are the most stimulating for growth and strength. And it's like, that's, a, there's an interesting yeah. way to test that only do the only do your volume in the shorter sets, but with more of those sets. Um, well, even then, though, actually, what if you just didn't take as many sets? Like that's, and that's just kind of the point I'm, I'm trying to make is like, there are so many different things that go into it that I don't yeah. think that blanket blanket statement applies anymore. Yeah. But there's just so many other things that go into it too, that you, like, I see why the blanket statement was made, mm-hmm. but in today's day and age with all the things that we do have control over, all the things that we have access to, it's like, there's so much more that we know now. And I just, I don't think it applies anymore. You know, if you guys are both game, I think I have an interesting question to help to wrap this episode up and bring us back to neural drive. And so for the boat, like all three of us are familiar with Dr. Hatfield and his CAT style of training. And for our audience, that's compensatory acceleration training. And what that means correctly. Yeah. What that means is that is he is he was a big proponent of using submaximal loads and moving them with maximal force and velocity. So maximum intent full mental focus, speed, precision, everything on all of the reps, even when they weren't max effort. And I'm very familiar with the concept. And I recently heard Trevor Jaffe and Riley Trevithick getting into that same, into a very similar discussion on their podcast in which Trevor states that he wants every repetition moved with maximum intent, like regardless of load, regardless of the proximity to failure, he wants every repetition moved in that manner. And I, if somebody were to come to me and say, Hey, what is the most effective way I can increase my neural drive over time? So if I recognize that, that McGill's pull-ups aren't going to do it, and I'm not going to take Anadrol and I'm not going to do no crazy shit like that. What do you think is the best way for me to do this long-term? And I would tell you that to, to look into that style of training, to look into the style of training where you are moving everything with maximal intent, maximal speed. And I think that through that mechanism over time, you will see a greater degree. And that was Dr. Hatfield's contention was that through this mechanism over time, he would see greater degrees of muscle recruitment versus performing the same volume with less intent. I agree with that. So just to throw this out there in my guidelines that I give to people who are just signing up with me for coaching, that Mm -hmm. is one of, it has its own bullet and everything. It is part of the guidelines. I want you to move every single repetition in a compensatory acceleration training style. Mm -hmm. So any squats we do or anything like that, it's all cat style. Now I will also throw in cat style squats in a meet, uh, to like a peak or something. Mm -hmm. But at that point, it's not generating strength or power or anything like that. For me, it's more about generating or blending. I should better say blending Mm -hmm. technique and speed that they already have to showcase it at the maximum level. I'm interested in going into uh, loading and volume parameters behind that at some point, because I've had similar thoughts for some of my, uh, my preps, um, especially in the last week, people are always like, what do you mean you're taking bench singles three days before the meet? It's like, wait, what? And, and I'm actually doing some of that similar style of training. Like it might only be 60% of load, but I'm moving it with maximum intent, greasing the yeah, groove, no, so to say. At yeah. that point, anytime I give somebody that it's never more than, you know, 70, 75% at maximum. Usually it's starting okay. somewhere around 60 and there are bands that are usually involved with it or chains. That makes and sense. if anything, the band tension or uh, the chains will increase and that's it. 
but also realize like when we're talking about bands in this situation, it's nothing, you know, in like a overload style fashion or anything like that. We're talking maybe 20, 30 pounds of band tension. Like okay. it is literally just enough band tension to keep us moving throughout the entirety of the lift. And this goes back to what we said earlier about teaching somebody to accelerate through the entire lift. Like that's yes. when mm-hmm. I program those, that is exactly what I'm trying to do. Is, mm-hmm. Like I just said, blending that, that speed with that technique. And that's one of the main notes that I put in those exercises specifically is, Hey, I want you to move as fast as you can, as efficiently as you can. And as technically sound as you can, if you start breaking down, that's when the set's over. I don't want anything beyond that. Okay. So Kyle thoughts on using a compensatory, compensatory acceleration style approach to increase neural drive over the long term via that mechanism of action. I'm okay with it as long as it has intention because I, I, I don't. So like the, the issue that I have, right. Is, Mm -hmm. is more to the original quote that you were basing the question off of from, from Jaffe because I, I agree with it for most athletes. I don't agree with it. Like to give you an example, right. If I moved every deadlift that I do, right. Regardless of the weight as if it was maximal, the three of us all know here that anything shy of 600 pounds, I'm going to end up rowing it and doing an RDL with it before I ever get into position. Yeah. So, so I will say real quick that, that he was, he was quick to point out that this is for like working sets and back down sets. He doesn't, he's not advocating for this approach in the warm up singles. So like you're, no, you're right on, you're right on point. But what I'm saying is, is that even certain working sets, I have mm-hmm. to intentionally slow down certain aspects of the amount of force that I produce mm-hmm. to make sure that I maintain a repeatable pattern position. Because if I, even if I'm doing a set of fucking four, with 70-80%, I still cannot pull that with the same amount of force that I would 90 to 100%. Because I will come out of position. Especially if I'm not methodical in how I'm doing it. Does that make sense? Right. So would you make the statement that provided you're staying in a good, repeatable position throughout these reps, you would endorse that? What I'm trying to say is, is that you have to make sure that your position is not being modified by the intention of moving it with the same amount of force. I agree. People try to like be fast off the floor in sumo and they don't have that and they just go straight to shit. And it's like, if the speed's not there, you're not going to force it. Um, This is actually a a weird, but positive thing that I can throw in here. Um, I unfortunately last Saturday had a minor pec pop. Mm-hmm. and not of my pec minor, but minor to the pectoral. Mm-hmm. So when I was taking my last quote-unquote heavy bench session this week to try and see what I'm actually going to be able to put up in competition, I had to, or Chris was lifting off for me, somebody who works out in our gym, and he had noted that I unintentionally popped the barbell out of the rack myself rather than waiting for the lift off. That was because I had loaded my shoulders the way that I normally would for what would be my opener and what would have been my second attempt. But because of the reduced load, my intent unintentionally pushed me out of position. Now don't get me wrong because of the load we were able, and he was the fact he was lifting off for me. So he was able to kind of catch it and stabilize it. But at the same time, if I wasn't doing that with a liftoff person and with somebody to stabilize that, I could have put myself in unintentional harm's way because of the fact that 
I did it with such intent that it popped out of the rack. So it's like one of those things where you have to allow for the fact that if you do produce a large amount of force with intent, you have to move with intent, but allow for the fact that there's a reduced load on the bar. Because like to give like, like, so like, let's say I normally squat six and change and I've only got three and change on the barbell. I am not going to pick with the same amount of force. I am not going to drive up with the same amount of force without allowing for the fact that I know that, hey, dum-dum, you're going to have to slow down or you're going to end up on your butt. Something like that. And then same thing with the deadlift. If I pull slack the way that I would with the intention of pulling a heavy one-rep single, it's going to be over my knees, and I might as well call it a barbell row with an RDL on the end of it. That's the reason why I'm saying you have to allow for the intent to adjust per the load. Yes, move it with the same intention, move it with the same overall mental aspect of it, but you don't just like, I'm putting as much force into this. And then you look at the video afterwards, you're like, why does that look nothing like how I deadlift? Why does that look nothing like how I bench? Why does that look nothing like how I squat? I've seen people fucking haul ass into like almost a jump pattern and almost throw the barbell off their back when they're squatting because they tried to squat 225 like they're 515 on a deload day and damn near fucking herniate a disc in their fucking cervical spine because they wanted to look cool on Instagram. So it's like one of those things where like, yes, I agree with the intention of the statement and I completely agree with what Trevor's actual intention of teaching people to do it with, but it has to be done with intelligence and it has to be done with a repeatable pattern in mind. So if you know that you have a setup that produces a shit ton of force and a shit ton of in a specific position, you may need to modify the amount of force, but just understand that the intent is the same. Yes. I, I'm I with that, that. Especially for a I'm deadlift. Just, yeah. I'm just trying to come up with good actionable advice for the right. audience member that asked this question. So I think, I that, think well, so. the thing is like, it's just, go ahead. Sorry. No. So the only thing I would say is like the caveat would be just squats and maybe bench press. Actually bench press, you'd still you wouldn't want to, like you said, explode as hard as you could because you risk the fact of pulling yourself off the bench. But Correct. what I could see for squats is you could have a multi-factor that goes into that. Like, hey, yeah, you don't want to pop this weight on your back. So also make sure you're pulling the weight into your back like you should be. Yes. Uh, Which, I, mean, you're I think that's the that only that caveat that I would say. Issues. I'm just yeah. saying that like you have to be smart with it. You don't need to fucking yeah, exactly. turn it into a rocket ship just to show everybody how intentionally you were lifting this. Like, it doesn't mean, you know, fucking shotgun the goddamn barbell, you know, and then hip thrust it so you've got fucking pelvic pain for three weeks because of the yeah. fact you decided to hip check 315 because you normally pull seven. Like, it doesn't yeah, help that. that. It doesn't help the intent. So, like, even if you have to, you know what I mean, maybe shortchange your slack pull, but then once you're in position, finish with the intent of a max rep, then that's worth it. But just because you're lifting with the intent of a max rep doesn't mean you have to do it through the whole range. Mm -hmm. Because again, some people here, like, I mean, shit, I've seen people do it. And which again, I'm not going to use this anybody's name, but I literally just here recently saw somebody pull 405 with such intent, like what we're talking about, but then could not pull their final attempt because of the pattern that was caused by the way that they pulled that 405. So it's like, because you ended up, repeating that pattern it just doesn't work like it, it's it's because you pulled yourself out of position trying to move it as fast as you could and then you get to your top set and then it's just fucked you're, you're completely fucked 
I thought you were talking about my deadlift session two weeks ago where I went to set up on 415 and like Kyle saying, because I was too like, so I had an audience and I don't normally train with an audience. And so I was, you know, you know how that gets. And I went to pull slack and wedge and the bitch popped right up off the ground and floated and like really threw me for a loop because that's how I set up and execute my deadlift. So like when I go to wedge and the bar comes off the ground, it's like, uh, what do from here? And thankfully it was 415. So I just stood up with it. But to the point of like what Kyle's saying, because I was pulling with maximum intent on submaximal load, I ended up having that issue. You just have to be careful and control it. That's all. Because just because you're pulling with maximal intent doesn't mean you have to pull with maximum fucking stupidity as well. Like there does, there is a, a limit of intelligence with this as well. I would agree with that. But I, and so to play, I guess, devil's advocate on that, I would rather somebody forcefully be in position. And then maybe take a little bit off the acceleration just so they're accustomed to being in those positions. Like I want somebody to be able to find the position in a deadlift or a squat of to explode from like those positions. You should be able to get to them even in, you know, a one plate deadlift. Uh, I don't agree with the caveat of neither one of you said it, but I've heard before of like, you have to use the weight to pull yourself into position. I don't necessarily agree with that. And reason being is because that creates, in my opinion, movement patterns that aren't, uh, I hate using the word, but optimal to say, uh, almost like basically using the bar to leverage yourself in, which I'm okay with doing that, but I still think you should be able to get into position to pull and create uh, basically like what Steve was saying, that, that pop off the floor from any weight, basically. Uh, so basically what I'm getting at is your movement pattern shouldn't change based on what you're trying to do. Like the intention should stay the same. It's, I'm arguing what Kyle's saying, but in a different fashion. No, I, I agree. I think like a good actionable recommendation that we can make for our listeners is that you should focus on maintaining a efficient, consistent and repeatable movement pattern and yeah. that's going to be one of the best things you can do for creating long-term neural drive adaptation. Once you've established the repeatable pattern, you want to consistently train in that pattern and maintain position through all your sets. Yeah. With that overarching theme, I feel comfortable saying that provided you're moving uh, your loads with sufficient acceleration and intensity, provided you're moving them with sufficient intent, I do believe you will see the long-term adaptation and neural drive that you're asking about more so than if you didn't employ these tactics. And for further reading, uh, I would encourage all of our listeners to look into Dr. Uh, Fred Hatfield. He's uh, unfortunately no longer with us, but his body of work remains. Uh, he published numerous books, tons of articles, a really interesting guy. Like, man, like the more I read about, the more I read about some of his stuff, the more I was like, so like the, the vertical leap that I'm talking about before his conventional deadlift, there are photographs of that at the YMCA nationals. Dude is like 11 and a half feet in the air. Like, yeah, bro, when I, say hops. when I say a vertical leap and I mean like, and he would do the same thing for squats. So I would really encourage our listeners to look into Dr. Hatfield and his legacy. Specifically, I would encourage them to look into the compensatory acceleration style of training. Uh, it's also very popular right now with Jailhouse Strong. Josh Bryant was one of Dr. Hatfield's closest friends. He was his protege. They traveled the world together doing seminars. So Josh Bryant and Jailhouse, they still employ a lot of those same tactics and not for nothing, but Jailhouse has some motherfucking strong lifters out there. 
So I would encourage people to look into those same tactics and philosophies. Now that we've covered neural drive, uh, I'm going to have to hop off here shortly, but I do want to take a second to talk about what the full send initiative has been up to because we talk about it when Kyle's not here, but we're not terribly, but we're not terribly capable of talking about it without Kyle because Kyle really is a one man band for this initiative at this point. Yeah, so we're, we're really trying to, to drive the initiative. We're trying to get it out there. So I'm interested in hearing about what Kyle's been up to in the recent weeks and what the plan is in the coming weeks for the initiative. Well, the plan is always trying to grow it as much as possible. So I've been reaching out to a few different aspects of it that are starting to grow. Believe it or not, we're now on two continents now, um, officially. Um, so I've been reaching out to a specific individual who is in the UK. Um, and he has been spreading some of our protocols because I did just finish our first overall protocol uh, pamphlet okay. that will be dis- uh, dispersed at our first spotting and loading seminar, which is next weekend, May 21st at Margate Barbell in Florida. If you are in Florida, there are still, I believe, nine spots available. Sign up. Um, that sign up will be open for free. Um, we just needed a count, a head count and a limit because Margate Barbell is not the biggest place in the world, but we're happy to have it. And we're happy to be there. Um, but we needed a head count and limitation. So we do have a sign up sheet there. Um, like I said, nine spots still available. It will be roughly, I would say at most three hours in duration right now. Um, I'm trying to keep it light being that it is right around lunchtime. We are starting at 11 AM on Saturday. Um, so I was trying not to starve everyone there, but at the same time, give everybody good quality content. Um, and I will probably be there a little bit thereafter to work on with some stuff one-on-one as well for anybody who wants to ask additional questions. Um, we are also running a USPA platform, the Magic City Meet in Miami, Florida, which is going to be an entire full send platform. Um, and then also in July, we will be, um, I believe, fully running the Iron Nightmare as well. That is tentative currently, um, but uh, at, at a minimum, the majority of the individuals involved there will be uh, full send. And we're currently looking at trying to schedule our second seminar either in North Florida or somewhere around Central Florida to get some more people involved as well, as we did receive some reaching out through uh Uh, messages currently stating that you know some people just can't make it because of the drive so we started with margate in south florida and we're going to move up the state and then believe it or not we actually also got a uh, message to travel to michigan Mm -hmm. to do a full send seminar up there as well and then also a inquiry as to chicago Um, but that one actually may be being held by one of my uh, senior team members uh, robert bain so um, he may be hosting that one. I'm not sure. We haven't worked out the logistics there. But uh, and then also um, the WPO this year, it is official. Um, I will be on the platform with Robert Bain, as well as a few of our other senior team members. Uh, again, spotting and loading for the strongest multiply power lifters in the world on the WPO platform as well. Um, other than that, um, we are actively trying to grow our following. Um, we are very close to a thousand followers at this point. We are actually only 300 away and it's actually only been about five months since we started. So if anybody will please reach out, follow us, give us a share. We are trying to get this information out there and make platforms safer for everybody and also your gyms safer. Like I know this sounds absolutely ridiculous, but 
keeping your own gym safer and the people in it, people will actually like to interact with you more. And if you want a good spot, it's who it would be who of you to be able to spot someone else well. And being able to know how to nicely interject and say, instead of, hey, dickhead, you don't know how to spot, just, hey, have you taken a look at this page? They might have some content you may want to look at. And so you may not plug just, it, but didn't you just recently have somebody reach out to you and say, hey, thanks for the uh, information? I did. Um, so we have actually received quite a few. Some have actually requested to remain anonymous, which I've respected. Um, anybody who wants to reach out with a question, I will always you will remain anonymous unless you say, hey, yes, you can share this. But I actually did have a very cool uh, comment that I was tagged in, which was an all-female gym crew who actually reached out that they had an injured athlete that they were rehabbing. And she was able to put 215, I believe, on her back for the first time with her crew because everybody made her feel comfortable enough that uh, they had the barbell if anything happened so that was an extremely cool message and i love seeing that um we've also received a couple that will remain nameless that uh some different platforms that they've seen imploring our teachings um and then when asked afterwards if this was something that they had learned they actually did learn it from our page so i love seeing that i don't need credit for that i don't want credit for that the goal is just to see this kind of grow on its own um so we are kind of seeing where this goes and where this grows on its own, but I will keep pushing and keep reaching out to try and see this start to grow across this country so that people across the country can experience better platforms. But one thing that I will absolutely say in a more why I'm doing this is um, I have seen a couple of posts here recently with missed catches with the quotation, it happened too fast to catch. And I will absolutely say that that is a positional error. If you are, you do not have to be faster than light to catch a barbell. If you are in the right position at the right time, there is no such thing as happen too fast to catch. Shit does happen, but position yourself so that when shit happens, because it will, you are in the right spot to make it happen in the safest way possible. I'm not going to say you're going to prevent everything because it's just not possible, but at the same time, positioning will absolutely give you the option and the opportunity to provide the most support for when shit will happen. And that's what I'm trying to do is trying to teach people how to be in the right spot so that the statement of, you know, it happened too fast to catch goes away. I'm sick of it. I'm sick of seeing it. It's a bullshit ass fucking excuse. And I'm sick of seeing good people hurt or damn near hurt over bullshit excuses to cover one's ass after it happens. Like, I would much rather say, fuck, we were out of position and be honest about it than give a bullshit excuse like it happened too fast to happen, especially when you've got the better part of 800 pounds on the barbell. It's just fucking inexcusable and it's irresponsible. Um, so again not trying i'm not singling anybody out i never will and i never will put up negatives on the page that's not how i want the page to grow but at the same time if you do ever see it happen just politely reach out and just say hey maybe you might want to give this page a look at that's the best way you can support it just spread the message spread the content and be polite when you're trying to suggest things to people 
don't don't say hey you need to follow this page just say hey have you have you looked at this stuff because some people don't know that there's a better way it's that simple and you know dalton's laughing his ass off right now but at the same time like it's just how i want to run the page because that's the only way you're going to get people to learn a new trick is to to politely say hey have you looked at this so steve and i would not be plugging it if we didn't believe in it yeah, and that's i appreciate line. that i do again i'm not trying to do this for my own clout or any bullshit because i have been accused of that here recently and i i think that's the one of the most pissed off moments that i've had in a while was that i was accused of trying to do this for my own clout and i could give two shits less hmm. i just want it to be safer that's it and what is the nobody was doing it before Full send initiative. It's very simple. The full send initiative. It is not One private. Word. It is not anything. The full send initiative. You can type it any which way you want. It'll come up. So awesome. um, the other thing I will say is that I will be working to do a YouTube channel here soon. And believe it or not, as much as I throw up at the thought of it, it was recently suggested to me to do a fucking TikTok. So I thought you were going to say OnlyFans. I don't know I, why. You know what? TikTok is better than OnlyFans. I'll you know what, <laughs> dude? I'll if it gets me if it gets the page more support, be on the lookout for nude spotting on the OnlyFans. You know, you might be onto something now, though. Like subscribe and you know, don't cast a shadow on the person you're spotting. I don't know what the fuck to say. Like, you know. <laughs> All right, and then Dalton, where can they find you? All right, so you can find me on Instagram, Dalton underscore mm, Iron Circus Strength and Nutrition, or just search ISCN, uh, or the website. Letter I, letter C, strength.com. Uh, coaches meeting every weekend, five o'clock Eastern time. We'll be there. Cool. Uh, that is about it where you can find me, Steve. Cool. You can find me on Facebook or Instagram by searching Steve Pruitt. Uh, my Instagram handle is uh, Steve's Lifts. I removed the intake questionnaire from my link tree. I'm about to start a new full-time job that I'm very excited about with some friends of mine. Uh, and I already am at my, I'm already at the number of clients that I feel comfortable with at this moment. Um, so DM me for, uh, advice and such, but at this moment, I'm not accepting clients. Cool. So cool, cool. it's been great guys. Sounds like a plan. All right, guys.